Welcome to the Enhance My App Podcast, where you can hear the latest and greatest tips and tricks on how to improve your mobile app. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with esports commentator and indie game designer Devin Becker about the rise and popularity of esports and what it takes to design your own esports game. With esports becoming so popular in the past decade, my first question for Devin was what makes it so appealing and compelling to watch compared to more traditional sports? I think it translates to a lot of the same stuff as regular sports, which is people enjoy kind of vicariously participating in things that they're not able to necessarily do themselves. Mm. Um, so it, it is enjoyable from a, a perspective of someone watching for the same reason that Twitch is popular, which you you know, you know go on and you watch people that are either more entertaining or better or funnier or whatever than yourself necessarily, and you can kind of vicariously enjoy uh, what they're bringing to the thing. Esports does the same thing. Then you also have like, you know, favorite teams, favorite players, that sort of thing that you can kind of enjoy as well. It just brings another dimension to kind of the meta game uh, to the game itself, which then also games being slightly more uh, intellectual than physical sports, not to denigrate physical sports, but there's more of an intellectual component a lot of times to the esports side of things. Then uh, the rise of geek culture has kind of supported this idea that geeks get their own sports as well. So, but it's more intellectual. It's not like chess as an esport. Obviously, chess is a little more of a dry one, but one that's a little more action oriented. Something that's kind of a middle ground between, you know, something like chess and a physical sport where there's still the mental component, but there's still a lot of visual uh, action and excitement to watch and enjoy. A lot of, you know, the the drama, the storylines, the excitement about the players. But then, as you mentioned as well, from the player perspective. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity for people to play video games for a living, which is something that people dreamed of doing for a long time. And a lot of times involved, you know, uh, getting into QA or something that's a lot more dull, whereas esports is something very exciting. You can spend all your time just getting good at a video game, go play it professionally, get media attention, you know, be on TV, that sort of thing that sort of cropped up from like some of the Asian countries uh, that have kind of uh, broke ground in that, like with the Korean Starcraft, things like that, have uh, made for a different kind of celebrity uh, and and there's a lot of these players, even in the game that I'm doing, getting paid very generous salaries uh, monthly to just, you know, practice and play. They Some of them have team houses where they get to live. So then your rent is covered. Sometimes they cover food. They're covering a salary. So being able to live and play off video games is something that I think is a lot of people, a lot of people dream of. And it's, it is hard work, but it's definitely not dull. There are many reasons why people watch traditional sports. But what particular aspects of an esports game make people want to keep watching? I think there has to be a certain amount of depth to it so that there's kind of a varying range of knowledge uh, on the game. You have the people that are just casual and new to it uh, and can see that there's a lot more to it than what they're seeing initially, but it has to be accessible enough that they can kind of understand what's going on to an extent, which is why something that, you know, like first-person shooters, for example, are a little more accessible. And something like Overwatch is a good example of something that's easy to understand when you're watching to an extent, although it is a little chaotic, but it's a first-person shooter, so you understand people are shooting at each other. Um, But... There has to be a certain amount of depth to it in terms of uh, a skill level and a skill ceiling that's very high to where people can be very good and very high skilled at it. And then people need to be able to appreciate that high skill level and realize, uh, you know, maybe they could get there someday. But that, that that's something that is so far beyond like the casual start that it is something to be, I wouldn't say necessarily worshipped, but to, to have some awe over what the player's skill level is like. Just like with physical sports, you know, where you see an athlete that's performing something uh, that is very very skillful in some way is something that is enjoyable to watch because you can kind of appreciate uh, what they're bringing to it. But there also needs to be a, a lot of variability to the game that you're watching. There needs to be something that is kind of different all the time, something interesting to watch uh, 
different than you know it's not just super repetitive all the time which has been i think a struggle with some games in particular that could just be a little dull but that's why esports are generally on games that are kind of live in the sense that they're constantly being updated patched balanced rebalanced changed something that kind of blizzard pioneered with the early starcraft and uh, and things like that where they will continually update the game to keep it interesting and fresh let's say you want to make your own esports game what are the type of mechanics you should be thinking about when you create one is there a certain way you should be designing it? It almost sounds like what you should be doing is looking to more traditional sports and just seeing what makes them a sport, what makes track and field a sport, what makes baseball or, or basketball. I mean, from the from like the the very beginning of the inception of those particular sports going way back in history, I mean, I'm pretty sure they, they didn't weren't like a, all originally like, hey, this is going to become a huge sport. This is going to become a really big thing. It was more like, hey, let's just... This is a little leather piece of ball here. Let's throw it back and forth. This seems kind of fun. So, I mean, it just, it, it, even from the examples that you were giving, it really does feel like that you need to think about it from the very beginning. It can't just be something like you were saying, like PUBG was doing, where they were just like, say, all right, a lot of people are enjoying this game. This, you know, what if we kind of threw this in here to, to make it feel more like an esports game instead of actually, you know, presenting itself from the very beginning as a game that's going to be focusing around tournaments and, and teams and leagues and all that kind of stuff. Is that what do you think? Is that right? Yeah. And let me give you an interesting example that's outside of traditional esports of, of what happens when you take a game and you uh, shape a variation towards spectating. So the history of poker has had a lot of variants on poker. I mean, anyone who's you know well versed in poker knows there's tons and tons of variations on it. But interestingly, Texas Hold'em, the one that most people know now, was not the the most popular one for a long time. But it's because it became popular because it was more spectator friendly because of the way you had the community cards that were visible to the audience and the way you could display whole cards with things like whole cameras and stuff like that. The AKA the two cards that you would have in your hand as a player made it a very spectator friendly variation on poker. And because of that, that became the dominant form that became quote unquote the esports version of poker. Essentially, that's the one that, you know, gets televised on ESPN and things like that. So when you're developing your game, uh, if you're not sure, you know, what the esports version will be, you know, this is obviously what something PUBG should have done in, in other games is do a lot of prototyping of different variations on your game to find out what might be the better version for that. Um, a good example of that is the game that uh, I compensate for, Rainbow Six Siege, it was actually originally designed to be an esports game. And they, they came out with eSport, uh, the eSports Pro League for it, like, I think it was two or three months after the game was released. So they were definitely ready for it. But if you look back at some of the early press stuff, they show that they were running internal tournaments uh, with just the gray box version of the game, meaning everything was without textures, all the walls, all everything was just gray. Uh, and they were still having fun. They were still having tournaments with it because they wanted to make sure the tournament functionality was fun and entertaining to watch before it was ever even close to the point of being a published game early on. So like, yeah, that you absolutely want to try that early on. And that helped them make design decisions early on because they were actually playing it in a competitive setting internally that supported that rather than just making assumptions on paper. They were absolutely testing that and they even ran some, some tournaments and brought in the QA people. They brought in some external people to play and they just basically make sure to ran, run through it a lot and make sure it worked for what they wanted to do. And the game's still evolving in terms of taking uh, inspiration from other esports. So for example, we recently added the idea of uh, picking and ba or banning operators. So operators are the heroes or champions or characters, whatever you want to call them that you select in the game. Normally you were freely available to select any of the ones that were uh, available, but we've, they've recently added the idea that a team can ban an operator from being played in that particular match. 
And the the effect of that is that completely changes how that particular match goes down and stuff like that. And that's something that's drawn inspiration from other games like MOBAs and things like that that have that face. So you can look at features of other games, see if they make sense for yours or not, and try them out internally. They tried out the, the whole banning of operators internally for a long time before deciding that that was something that they wanted to put in publicly. And now it's uh, debuting this season and is going to be a big, huge shift in the game. But it was very carefully done. They didn't just throw that out with the initial version of the game, hoping it would work. Yeah, so it really does sound like that you should be doing lots of playtesting, lots of prototyping in the very beginning and trying to figure out, you know, is this game is this game going to play well with the people who are actually playing the game? Do they find it fun and entertaining? But also, too, are the people who are going to be watching this game played going to be having just as much fun as the people who are playing it? Um, so I guess that's why you need to kind of add a bit of spectacle in there. But, of course, also really thinking about the different types of mechanics and how um, how they they are constantly making it so that everything you do is exciting to watch. Is that like a really important aspect you think? I mean, especially from like doing the commentary, do you really see like when people get excited, that's when you know you're, it's doing a good job. Yeah. And, and the spectator experience is something that's very important from a design perspective. And it's something that the game I'm on, for example, still struggles with. Mm. So we, uh, something like Counter-Strike, for example, is, is a good example of a game that has a long lineage. It's been around for, I mean, essentially since the early version of Counter-Strike, about close to 20 years at this point, and has developed a lot of spectator tools along the way to the point where random audience members or random people at home can join in and spectate a lot of games freely on their own, control the camera, do whatever they want to do. There's replay files where you can download a file and replay from anyone's perspective and go around. Stuff like that is very mature tools and very uh, good to have. And something to consider early on because, you know, for example, Siege does not have replay files. It, it has a limited one spectator, which is which makes it very difficult because, uh, for example, the the game is very three-dimensional in terms of that their fights can happen vertically as well as horizontally. And it makes it very difficult to catch a lot of the action with just one spectator. So uh, some of those tools not being built into the game, not being baked into the game early on are still hurting some of the accessibility to the audience. They're still limiting how broad of an audience this game can have at the moment. And that is something you have to consider because you, you have to think about uh, the knowledge level of the people watching the game and how much that translates to what they can see on screen. So for example, us as casters, commentators, we can tell what's going on just by sound, just by the things that are being displayed in terms of text of the, the kill feed. We can tell what's going on because we know the maps very well. We know the operators. We know what's possible. We know what the strategies are. All that stuff translates into us seeing things or knowing things that are going on that you can't see on the screen. But the general audience is not going to get those things. That they, and they depend somewhat on us as commentators to translate those things for them to make it so it's obvious what's going on. But you don't want to have to depend on your, your commentators to be able to translate everything. Because if so, then they might as well be a radio broadcast and, and not <laughs> even play anything visually. And that, and that is a difficult thing. You need to translate things into UI. Sometimes the spectator view needs to even be different than what the players would normally see. So for example, when we're spectating, we see the outlines of every person playing, but obviously the players don't see the outlines of the enemy team. We can as a spectator, so that way we can know where everyone is at at all times, something that we have an advantage of. And, and so considering giving the spectator uh, abilities and, and, and visibility on things that the players don't necessarily have, is important and you need a spectator mode. And I would really encourage, uh, if you're thinking about doing an esports game, to really think about replay files, the ability to replay matches, because it gives you the ability to go back and uh, and also have content creators to be able to, to provide uh, different perspectives on the match, analysis to go back and really see the depth of the match. Players will develop their, their skills much faster 
Uh, there's a lot to that that is difficult to accomplish, but it's something that is well worth the time invested early on to make sure that those tools are ready. And at least with Siege, they demonstrated and tested out the early spectator tools before the game had launched uh, a couple of months before because they, they had a public tournament debuting the spectator tools in August of 2015 and the game came out in December. So they at least were somewhat prepared, but we are still suffering uh, whatever was not prepared because they're still trying to spend all their time on game features and balance and things like that. You, you're not going to always have the time you think you will after release to improve those things as fast as you'd like. Esports has primarily been something that you play on your PC, but we are now seeing a lot of those type of games moving to mobile. Why is that? And how should you be designing your game for that platform? If you look at the Twitch stats, for example, people that are into esports watch way more Twitch on mobile devices than mm. on desktop computers. And I think that's a good indicator of people that are interested in esports being interested in esports being related to mobile. And uh, there's a lot of presentations uh, I'd seen recently, some webinars and things like that, coming from Amazon about their game on platforms and things like that, where they're, they're charting and showing a lot of the rise of interest in mobile esports gaming. Some of that starts with stuff like Vainglory and things like that, uh, trying to pioneer that. Some of the difficulty with that is going to be screen size and things like that in terms of control schemes are very difficult. So you see, for example, a lot of these games uh, initially supporting things like tablets more so than phones just because the larger screen size provides a little more accessibility to the controls. Uh, none of these are necessarily trying to support, like, uh, say, some of those controllers that can kind of fit around the phone or things like that. Uh, no one's trying to build around having a specific hardware dependency like that, but that is something that's possible. We also are seeing stuff like Steam Link, uh, be available for Android and potentially in the future iOS where people can play Steam games using their Steam controller on their mobile phone as opposed to having to be directly on the computer itself. So there is definitely a huge swing towards accessibility on mobile devices, but there's a lot of control scheme and UI limitations to having such a small screen size that you're going to have to design differently for. So uh, a good example are some of the MOBAs that, you know, uh, Vainglory I mentioned earlier, but also Arena Valor and... Uh, I think there's at least one more that I'm forgetting offhand, but they all have different control schemes that are trying to address uh, the fact that they are on a mobile device. I mean, usually when you're playing MOBAs, you have a keyboard and a mouse, and that provides two different types of controls that aren't necessarily mappable the same way to a um, uh, touchscreen. But you also have the rise of people playing uh, a lot of mobile games on Android emulators. So people will be playing on stuff like BlueStacks and whatnot on their computer to play these mobile games in a way that's a little more accessible for them uh, control scheme wise, because they'll map uh, certain touch gestures and things like that to their keyboards. So for example, a lot of clash Royale people early on when clash Royale was trying to be an early esports pioneer, trying to run tournaments, people were playing on their, uh, the, on their computers that way to be able to play a little more accessibly. So that does offer an alternative to playing also on your device. So you can still play when you're on a, a computer itself, but it does require thinking ahead into your control scheme to make it something that is possible to play like that. And you really want to do keep your control schemes simple. But the big problem with that is sometimes when they're simplifying their control scheme for these games, they can lower the skill ceiling too much to where the, the people can't get super skillful because the game's doing too much for them. Like, for example, auto-aiming is a good example of that. So uh, recently I'd been playing the Paladin Strike one, which is um, Paladins you mentioned earlier is like uh, another... Uh, Overwatch kind of series, and they've they've branched out into a battle royale kind of game recently, Realm Royale. But they've also done that kind of a MOBA on uh, on mobile called Paladin Strike, and it's trying to be kind of a five v five MOBA quick battle sort of thing. Um, but the control scheme for that originally had some sort of auto aiming and things like that in some of the early beta, and they went away from that into more of an aiming scheme. But it's it's still a little bit difficult to control on a mobile device, 
And uh, that does require a certain amount of skill. And you do want a, a, quite a bit of skill in your game where it, it will eventually fail as a tournament game. Another difficulty about designing an esports game for mobile is dealing with a weak internet connection. Is it possible to build a competitive game that isn't real time? Yeah, you do have to think about that from a design perspective is how much data is required to be sent. And it doesn't have to be too technical. You just kind of need to think in terms of the the events that are being needing to be transmitted to the other players. So um, if a lot of stuff is happening automatically and not necessarily at the request of the player, not necessarily in response to a button tap or a swipe or whatever, then those things can be transmitted and playback locally on the other device, not necessarily needing to send all the individual detailed data. So in most games, you know, one of the things you have to track is player movement, and there are some good algorithms and things to kind of reduce the amount of data to predict that. But it is always going to be a little bit of a struggle in terms of dealing with data limitations over the air, like 4G and 2G and whatever, as opposed to Wi-Fi. Obviously, designing for Wi-Fi only is definitely going to limit your audience, and it does make it more difficult for, say, competitive uh, first-person shooters on mobile, which are already difficult control scheme-wise. But the more individual... Uh, small little things that the player does that have to be transmitted to all the other players to make sure everyone's synced up, the more complex that's going to get and the more desyncs are going to mess with your ability to accurately play a game. And it's really going to frustrate your players because they're going to die to things that they shouldn't have died to. They're going to get kills that they didn't deserve. And it's going to be situations where the balance is going to be very difficult to maintain um, because connection is going to be Potentially spotty, even with Wi-Fi. Mobile devices sometimes just get a lot of hiccups on Wi-Fi, not to mention interruptions that can come in on a mobile device and can cause you to uh, temporarily switch apps or things can happen that uh, just make it very difficult to have a consistent connection. And that's been an, an issue since mobile game development started. But especially for a competitive tournament system, you really need to consider that. Throughout the interview, Devin and I talked a lot about what it takes to build a successful esports game with so many different aspects to think about. I asked him what final advice he had for a developer who wants to make their own esports game. Yeah, I mean, uh, something I always say a lot, which is to uh, to kind of get a, a personal level of experience as opposed to just theoretical in the sense of watch a lot of these different esports. Watch the mobile ones, watch the uh, non-mobile ones, the PC ones, the Xbox ones. Watch all of the, the ones that, that look like they could be even remotely interesting, especially from a variety of genres, and, and see what engages you, see what works for you, see what doesn't. Um, obviously you have to give it a little bit of chance because let's say you get a bad match or you get some casters that are not very good or you get a, a tournament that just happens to be a bad tournament or in another language that you don't speak. Uh, you're going to have to be a little patient with it, but I, I definitely recommend kind of scattershotting a little bit in terms of, of seeing what appeals to you, what works for you, and getting a more visceral feeling for what you can use in your game, what makes sense to you as an audience member. So that you could translate that to your game because not everything will work for every game, but getting a feel for, hey, this helps engage me and being a little introspective on it in terms of being like, well, you know, like this, the, the game itself looks kind of boring, but because of the way that it's being commentated or because of the way that the spectators controlling the camera or the storylines are being presented, I'm being engaged still. And that's helping me uh, stay engaged in this game. Those are things that you can take away. Uh, but especially if you're developing mobile games, you're going to have to watch a variety of them because it's such a new space that people are going to be experimenting with that and, and seeing what they could do. And then watching developing esports like the the Battle Royale ones to see how they're solving some of their problems may help give some insight into what you could do to solve some of your own and maybe try and read articles about those particular problems that people are struggling with and opinion pieces on possible solutions just to get your brain thinking from a uh, problem-solving perspective so that you're not just copy and pasting ideas from other games. 
Thank you for tuning into the show. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Enhance My App. If you are currently building a mobile app, head on over to Enhance.co, where we make it easy to integrate in advertisements, analytics, push notifications, and payment services into your mobile app. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.